The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We absolutely support Israel's right to defend itself in line with international law. We need to safeguard financial stability. 2024 is not going to be an easy year. We used to call it the dream of home ownership. But look at Britain now. We've got to hang on to optimism and hope because it is the biggest driver of change. Let's stop thinking of life in terms of Brexit. Let's move on and look for the future. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Lizzie Burden. Welcome to the programme. Lizzie, this is the time of year where I still can't believe it's only the 11th of January because I feel like even just getting out of the bed in the morning is a massive win. Um, and The fact that I move generally so slowly in my life, but particularly at this time of year, has me thinking a lot about reaction speeds and how pol- political politicians responding to issues that are of interest to the public sometimes seems to happen very quickly sometimes Mm -hmm. seems to happen extremely slowly and I'm thinking about this in the context of the announcement we had yesterday from the Prime Minister about the compensation and exoneration of those affected by the post office scandal I'm sort of torn about which way to think about this in some ways it does look like the Prime Minister actually moved quite quickly on what had been this outsurge of public outrage over the issue of course linked as we've been talking about to that ITV drama on it as well but the other part of me just thinks this has been going on for decades and if if it was that quick to put a plan out there what is this just election expediency is this speeding things up of how political you know, stories are going to move this year? I mean, you have to wonder when politicians aren't sensitive to popular opinion. Mm. I think I read the first report on this was in 2009. That doesn't seem very quickly to me. I remember having lunch with a certain former prime minister whose career at number 10, shall we say, was short-lived. And they'd picked some outrageous figure to represent their department on the world stage. And I said to them, you're only doing this to annoy people, annoy the opposition, but please your voters. And and they were like, of course, Lizzie, everything is to please the voters. Uh, so, yes, it's not new. Politicians do stuff to please people. And they do it especially quickly when it's an election year and they want to give the people what they want. And so Sunak saying that he would, quote, strongly support an honours committee, if it looked again at the CBE, awarded to the former post office boss, mm-hmm. seems a pretty cost-free easy win. And you might put it together in the same basket as delaying the net zero targets and rethinking HS2. Arguably those were riskier. Um, But it's a surely no-brainer in an election year. Yeah, to be able to do things like that. It does make me think, though, about whether we might see more of this quick action in response to other things. And I was... um, noted with interest the the reaction from the people who were affected by the infected blood scandal. They're still awaiting compensation from a state failure that dates back even to predate the post office scandal to the 70s and 80s. The report from that public inquiry, the first version of it published in 2009, calling for a fairer compensation package for victims. Some of those victims have been reacting to this news around the post office deal as well, saying that they're upset, although they support the post office victims in in getting this action from government, that they're upset that things haven't moved faster from them. And there are parallels between these scandals as well. And and it just would be interesting to see if the movement might come 
on this, on other issues at the same apparent speed that we've seen things move on this issue this week. Look, if a TV drama can spotlight an issue on which action needed to be taken but hadn't for too long, that's a good thing. you just got to hope this sort of issue doesn't get belatedly sorted too frequently. So the government's plan to quash the convictions of some 980 of these post office workers does actually face a host of legal complexities. And our legal reporter and deputy bureau chief here in London, Jonathan Browning, joins us in studio now to explain. Um, Jonathan, first of all, how unusual is it to have a situation where a law passed in Parliament could overturn a conviction handed down by the courts? It's utterly unprecedented in the in the modern world, in the modern um, world that we live in where the courts and the judiciary are an entirely independent separate um, estate effectively and this is a moment when a blanket exoneration comes in and effectively comes over the top of that judicial process. But that seems quite a dangerous precedent actually if you had a completely different scenario where let's say that someone in Parliament wanted to exonerate someone who was really bad, a villain. This could be dangerous in future, couldn't it? It could. And even the government um, acknowledges the sort of rare side of this this, this constitutional step um, and, and, and quite upfront about it. Um, they are, in this case, pretty confident that there is support for this specific um, piece of legislation there is very little um, opposition to it, but it absolutely does raise the precedent of, and, and, and I think perhaps the reminder of who's in charge. And at the end of the day, that's Parliament. It's funny because we're about to talk about Brexit later in the show, but moving on. <laughs> does, I mean, does it mean that this is going to be a very complicated bill to draft, though? Because given the unusual nature of it, do we have any idea of what sort of form it might take or, or what it might look like? So there was some discussion about whether or not individual exonerations could be and would be more appropriate. Um, and... David Davis, who's been a big sponsor of this, had, had, had raised that as an option because there were some concerns, I think, about everybody being lumped together. Um, but the government has taken the decision that the, the, the kind of the best of all the worst options, if you like, is this blanket exoneration. Um, the other side of that means that there might be some people that were guilty that are exonerated mm-hmm. and the government said they couldn't they couldn't know whether that's five percent ten percent of people the court of appeal has looked at some of those cases already and one of the reasons we're in this situation is because there is a court of appeal process that can overturn convictions but it's very very slow but some of the cases that the court of appeal has looked at they've actually refused to overturn the convictions because there were concerns perhaps it wasn't just horizon that was at fault there might have been other elements to it. Well, it's interesting because we were talking about how it seems a really easy win politically, given the furore after the ITV drama. But actually, is this particularly popular in the legal community? I think, again, it's it's not something that will raise a lot of opposition. It doesn't sound like the judiciary themselves, which doesn't really kind of have a voice. Mm. Um, but it doesn't sound like they are, are angling for anything other than Um, what the government is kind of going for. Again, government's in charge. Politicians get to make the laws. Um, The judiciary is there to um, enact that and to oversee it. Um, 
the as I said, the the DPP, a, a previous DPP, who's the person that's responsible for prosecutions, has just raised this possibility. We need to be comfortable with the fact that some people who were guilty will be exonerated. But the general procedure and thinking is it's better to um, have one guilty person exonerated than it is to convict someone who is innocent. Yeah, and I think the, the what we heard from the Prime Minister yesterday about the, the, the descriptions of the scale of this in terms of injustice as well plays into that uh, narrative. I want to take a couple of steps back in this story as well because these convictions actually came about as a result of private prosecutions led by the post office. This is a very unusual power for a company to have. How how was the post office able to do this? And when I tell um, my colleagues in the US that, 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 that there is such a thing as a private prosecution, they, mm. they raise their eyebrows somewhat. Uh, it's it's a quite a specific quirk uh, and unique to, um, to places like the UK. Um, and it enables... Um, a literally an individual or a um, corporation to take the law into themse- unto themselves. Just, uh, just to take the case, though, because it is ultimately still the, the courts that will decide on the case. Agreed, agreed. It's 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 the the corporation that that is there to prosecute. Um, the the normal the normal court procedures would play take place. It it, it could take place with a jury uh, and all the safeguards that take place. But rather than the Crown Prosecution Service, which is the uh, state prosecutor, and that in and of itself is an independent entity, um, the post office is the prosecutor in this case. Mm -hmm. And is that power likely to stay intact after this? There is some discussion about whether or not um, private prosecution should be looked at again. It's quite a growth industry within the legal world. because you can you can go and take a private prosecution and, and and essentially hire a law firm to build a case for you precisely and so for lawyers it's another form of business um, but um, it's also there to prevent miscarriages of justice bizarrely enough it's there if the state and the prosecutor decide not to prosecute and so someone else can bring a case and the terrible tragedy about this is that actually that was then abused. And so what we were discussing with Sabar Meddings, who's been reporting on this as well from the business side, is who's to blame? Is it the legal system or is it a political failure? I think in this case, the um, government pointed to the malevolence of the post office, which is quite a strong word. And if Mm. you think about it, right, like what they're saying there is that the post office were direct and targeting of these postmasters. And so in that case, I think there is um, effectively a system that was there to prevent miscarriages of justice that was that was that was taken and turned and turned against it instead. Yeah, very interesting stuff. Our legal reporter and deputy bureau chief in London, Jonathan Browning, thanks so much uh, for joining us to bring us up to date on that story. Now to something completely different. The UK economy, £140 billion smaller, 3 million fewer jobs by 2035, including half a million in London. And that's the cost of Brexit, according to a study commissioned by City Hall. It's backed by the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, and it was undertaken by consultancy Cambridge Econometrics, whose Chief Operations Officer, Ben Gardner, joins us now. Ben, great to have you on the UK Politics podcast. I wonder how you can actually disentangle the impact of Brexit from all the other things that have been going on, the war in Ukraine and the pandemic. Thanks, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, 
Yeah, it's an it's an interesting one because uh, when we did the previous study, the original eight, 2018 one, um, we didn't know much about uh, the implications of Brexit, and certainly we didn't know anything about um, COVID. And we didn't know anything about Ukraine, um, but we were still able to, um, to to kind of make best guesses about the particular kind of flavour of Brexit that we were going to. Um, uh, possibly uh, encounter because there were a number of different options this time around scroll forward five years and we've got a number of different um, uh, indicators data sets that we know have reacted to brexit for example trade um, certainly with the eu investment patterns also population migration as well and that certainly that that absolutely covers um the period towards the end of that of, of covid and ukraine and it does make Picking out the effects of Brexit um, quite messy, quite difficult, but that's you know what we're paid for. That's why why we're qualified economists to do this in our modelling. So we do our best to disentangle these effects uh, and isolate them for the um, uh, to to look at the impact of Brexit. So you looked at so we gave some of the figures there in the introduction, but one of the others that was in it is that the average Briton is is nearly two thousand pounds worse off because of Brexit. How do you come up with that figure? Uh, well, it's an overall effect that you can obviously divide through by the population. Um, this time around, um, we were able to have a better handle on investment uh, because uh, at the time of the referendum, uh, investment was doing reasonably well, uh, as far as the data showed. Uh, scroll forward five years and you can see it absolutely flatlined um, after the referendum. Business uncertainty, just didn't know what was going on with uh, the political choices and everything. Um, and although it's kind of, and then it went down with with COVID and obviously Ukraine as well. Since it's re- recovered, but it's not going to recover to the same level that it would otherwise have been at. So it's going to be kind of permanently lower, uh, even though it's on an upward trajectory. Trade is um, one that took a bit longer for the effects to take place because of transition periods that were uh, that were in place. Uh, but again, we're seeing changes in patterns with. Um, uh, with the EU, um, with um, kind of lowering of exports, lowering of imports uh, in those directions. Population is um, also one which could potentially affect uh, incomes be with access to skilled jobs, skilled labor, also unskilled as well. Mm. Um, but that's a more interesting one because it's had less of an effect than we'd otherwise have thought because you've also got, the, the kind of, in a sense, positive bounce from Ukraine with um, more people coming in, also Hong Kong as well, has mitigated some of the um, skilled labour effects that we would otherwise have seen from uh, from Brexit happening. I want to pick up on that point about the labour market because businesses are constantly complaining about how they can't get the staff they need, especially with the right skills. But how do you fix that problem? Because surely if you just pay higher wages, that would mean higher inflation, which really has been a problem over the past couple of years. Um, well, yeah, just playing higher wages um, won't won't solve everything. You want um, productivity to um, to improve as well. Uh, and while wages and productivity do go reasonably hand in hand, it's usually productivity comes first because firms have got to be a, creating more value in order to pay people the money um, for their jobs. But how um, do you attract the where, workers without higher wages? Well, by having better working conditions um where you know you you can obviously um 
uh, offer offer higher wages. But as you say, that that can lead to inflationary pressure, uh, particularly if you don't have um, the productive capacity as well uh, and the investment that hasn't actually happened since Brexit because of this uncertainty and because of um, business confidence. So you can you can paying people higher wages is great, but they've got to also be productive to um, uh, to, to kind of um, cope with that. Now, you've carried out this assessment of, of the economic damage, but is there are there lessons to be learned from this in terms of the solutions that politicians could put in place to perhaps ease some of that damage? Um, well, um, certainty of government policy would be um, would, would be a big plus. Um, somehow, I don't think we're going to get that in the short term with a, an election year um, probably this year looming. Um, and it really then depends on um, what the incoming government can do to uh, convince businesses that um, they are on a sustainable, correct track so that they will actually start have the confidence to start um, investing more. Uh, better trade deals uh, will help. The government's been trying since Brexit, uh, removed a lot of those. But we see where we are with the US UK trade deal. There's no sign of it happening. Um, so I don't hold out too much hope there. Um, and, you know, the big the big thing, obviously, elephant in the room is about rejoining. But again, um, you can't see that happening in the short or even medium term, I don't think. And um, on what terms would we rejoin? So um, I don't want to be a doomsday, but um, it's hard to see some of the effects um, that we've already seen happening in the last five years actually actually being reversed, really. Well, look, though, I mean, supporters of Brexit will say that, you know, you have to give it time for it to settle in and and flourish and allow for the opportunities to open up. You, you talked about the centrality of sentiment there when it comes to things like business decisions. Is this something that perhaps after an election, for example, we could see government driving business sentiment higher, which could perhaps counteract some of these negative effects? Um. Possibly. I mean, they, they could do a lot more to encourage investment, um, which would uh, Im- improve productivity and, and give um, uh, businesses more confidence to, um, to, to kind of get, get, get moving on the, the, these issues. Um, I mean, a- anything that would, would raise business sentiment, I think. There have been, you know, the last six, seven years, it's, it's been pretty poor in terms of um, certainty of policy and governance. Uh, uh, and really, I think businesses just want a return to some kind of normality so that they can actually build on a future. They have some idea what it's going to be. Yeah, I'm not sure when you're next planning to do this. It seems a five-yearly thing. But do you think that when the Bank of England has cut rates, actually all these numbers might look less gloomy? Well, changing interest rates... Yeah, I mean, it, it can have an effect on um, investments. Um, it can have so, some negative effects on um, inflation as well. I mean, you just it, there's so many other things happening. Um, I think for, from what we've seen, um, confidence, uh, business confidence is um, is by far the most pressing factor that's needed to return at the moment. So um, even if you're cutting interest rates, um, now in an environment where businesses are uncertain they're not sure what's going on um then the effects of a kind of small rate cut are not going to have huge impacts maybe maybe at the margin but not um not not of the not of the scale to return anything 
uh, the lost investment we've seen over the last six or seven years. Ben, do we have a historical precedent for this sort of hit to the economy and perhaps the sort of bounce back that, that could be secured in the future? It's an interesting one um, because obviously you've got kind of conflicts, wars um, that we've experienced in the past, not not within Britain in um, recent memory, but um, the, these tend to be more of a kind of a hard shock um, followed by a kind of rebuilding process and then hopefully usually a kind of renaissance like the kind of swinging 60s after World War II. Um, Brexit, although I think at the time of the referendum, it was sold that it was going to be a complete car crash if we left. Um, you know, people woke up the next morning and it wasn't. <laughs> or you know, although I've although I've painted it as um uh, as it's you know it hasn't been as good as it would otherwise have been. Mm. Um, Brexit is it's not a car crash. I, I, you know, um, other people, other commentators have talked about this, uh, and Brexit is more like a slow puncture. The, the car crash it's lots of effects building up accumulating up over the longer term so in that respect it's it's you know if you're using the war analogy it's not like a, a coup de gras it's more like a thousand paper cuts that um gradually weaken you and weaken the economy over the longer term and that's um i should say that's the start of what we've been seeing with the effects on investment with the effects on trade um, like I said, less on population and migration because of these other effects. But as they work out there, then we could see more of those school shortages coming in in future. OK, very interesting stuff. And one then to monitor for how this research develops over time as well. Ben Gardner from Cambridge Econometrics, thanks very much for joining us. Well, speaking of sentiment on the UK, I want to return to a theme that we've been discussing, debating here on this podcast, how much the bond market will punish exuberant fiscal pledges from anyone who I, wants I to be a, Prime Minister. I sent a market says guardrails, klaxon being developed. <laughs> yes, well, it is the subject of the year. We spoke to Erin Platz yesterday, the CEO of HSBC Innovation Banking. You'll remember she was CEO of, HS, of Silicon Valley Bank UK, mm. uh, which... Uh, HSBC bought for a pound last year because the parent company, SVB, collapsed. And she deals a lot with startups. She really has her ear to the ground of that scene because they're the clients of both SVB UK and now HSBC Innovation Banking. And we asked her whether a change of government to a Labour government would persuade more companies to list here in London. Here's her answer. There's still a lot of conversation around where, as a technology company, where are the best places to list? I think the good news is, is the UK always features in that conversation. But you're absolutely right, especially in certain subsectors, let's say enterprise software, we have seen a predominance of companies, UK, European companies going to the US. I don't anticipate that changing, actually. The the public markets are are obviously not as active as they have been before. I, I am hopeful that perhaps later in 2024, depending on the interest rate environment, we'll start to see some unlock. There's definitely the stable of private companies that have the ability to go public when they choose to. Um, I think the journey for UK public markets has been a positive one over the last few years in that between mansion house reforms, between the the changes that from the class of shares, share stock, um, class of shares from a Mm. reg perspective. I think all of that bodes well to continuing to make the UK an attractive place to list. But we need to be realistic that I, I think we still need some more time to, to catch up with the U.S.
So, Keir Starmer's smoked salmon and scrambled eggs offensive to woo the city won't make much difference, according to Erin Platts. In fact, she was pretty praising of the Chancellor's Edinburgh reforms. And she says, with interest rates at a peak, capital markets deeper stateside, she actually says it isn't all about Brexit. Mm. Actually, the UK's issues are bigger than a change of government can solve. Now, we put a similar question to Helen Jewell. She's Chief Investment Officer at BlackRock Fundamental Equities for EMEA. She was joining us on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe this morning. Listen to her answer. I think the key thing when you come to the UK is where the valuations are at. So valuations in, in Europe generally are, are really attractive. I mean, I should have said when I mentioned those stocks numbers, it was 18.6 times a couple of years ago. It's uh, more like 13, 14 times now. In the UK, Lizzie, that number is 10. I mean, 10x for UK equities is a really, really interesting entry point. And in the small caps, you've got some really interesting small cap names, some trading at five, six times PE. So I think from a valuation perspective, we've got some really, really interesting opportunities in the UK and any kind of catalyst from whichever government it might come from that really helps to unlock that valuation means that the UK could be a really interesting place for investing right now. So to be honest, I don't necessarily think I think we can be a bit more government agnostic. Look, government agnostic, I think, is the expression uh, to be thinking about when I certainly from an investment point of view, that was Helen Jewell from from BlackRock talking to us a little bit earlier um, about this issue, about whether a change in government might help to to boost sentiment around various elements of the market. And, you know, it's it's interesting to put these pieces together with the bigger opinion that we're starting to see about the UK election this year and perhaps an acknowledgement to in markets that no matter who gets elected, they're not going to have a whole lot of space to play with to make any dramatic changes. Exactly. And it makes you wonder whether, well, there's so much uh, excitement about how Labour had wooed the city. It was certainly the impression at Labour Party conference. And here are the market voices saying they don't think much would change under a Labour government. And it makes you wonder, are businesses actually just flocking around the Labour Party because the polls suggest they'll win? Or are Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer actually promising anything substantive on policy? Businesses, we want to know, <laughs> what are they telling you at these breakfasts? It's something we're going to be covering throughout the year, I'm sure sure as we head towards the general election. Yeah, certainly will be, and a story to keep an eye on as well. That's it from us for today on the show, though. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe, give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Tiwa Adebayo, and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.